welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSB Magazine. You're listening to a new The Hacker Factory podcast with hacker maker, Philip Wiley. You're about to discover what the role of a professional hacker entails, the different specializations it holds, and what it takes to learn and become one. Enjoy the conversation as Philip and guests unveil the secrets of professional hacking, a mysterious, intriguing, and often misunderstood occupation. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Wiley. I refer to myself as the Hacker Maker. In each episode, I have an interesting guest with an interesting story on how they got started in the industry. Hopefully this story today will help inspire someone to start their journey into cybersecurity. And each episode, like I mentioned, we have a really unique guest. And my uh, guest today, Gabe Thompson, has a really cool story. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So thanks for joining us today, today, Gabe. Well, thank you for having me. I I know you've had a lot of wonderful guests, and I'm honored to now be counted amongst uh, those those guests. Yeah, it's awesome to have you. I mean, I've... Uh, been impressed with the way you've progressed and the the amount of effort and work you put into your career is uh, is very inspirational and and you know it's really awesome to see. So uh, why don't you tell our listeners about yourself? All right, here we go. So currently, I'm a red teamer slash offensive operator with a large financial institution. And one thing I like to note is my faked LinkedIn accounts have more connections than my personal one. And on the side, I train for 100-mile trail races. So to give kind of some folks a, a TLDR up front, regardless of anything else you hear from me, whether it's on social media or on this podcast, it doesn't matter if you're a he, she, or they. If you want to be in this field, there's a spot for you somewhere. You might not know what you want to do, where you fit, or what the best place for you might be, but feel free to join in and explore. So as a kid, right, if, if we take this like all the way back uh, in, in my journey of kind of how I got here, and I, th- I think a lot of people build up upon themselves and they shouldn't necessarily forget where they've come from, whether it's a previous role, a previous place of employment, or even themselves growing up. So as a kid, while my mother was at work, I often tagged along with my grandfather who worked on jukeboxes, pinball machines, and arcade games. This experience of vacuum tubes and electronics probably seeded itself somewhere in my mind because growing up, I I tinkered with toys, taking them apart, trying to swap components to get cars or trains to go faster. And at some point, I'm sure I'm lucky I didn't get electrocuted with some of the stuff that I did. And so also growing up, I didn't have a computer in the house. I had access to them at school, but for the most part, my ideas of computers before high school revolved around trying to get time to play Oregon Trail in the computer lab. 
in high school, I did kind of a, a rudimentary semester class on ZBasic. Uh, at that time, I had kind of made my mind up where as soon as I graduated high school, I was going to join the United States Marine Corps. So there was no real further ambitions regarding computers after that. And so after high school, I went to Marine Corps boot camp and fully went into the Marine Corps, believing that that was going to be what I did until retirement. Funny thing about life when you're at that age is you don't necessarily understand how your life will evolve, your mentality will shift as the years progress. And so I can fully kind of boil down my computer experience in the Marines as this, making rosters with Excels, writing SOPs and five paragraphs, five paragraph orders with Word, and while finally checking email in like the last few years I was in the Marine Corps when they actually had, you know, a dot mil address. And so somewhere during that time in the, in the Marines, I ordered a gateway computer, and this wasn't really to do anything more than pretty much play games. Kind of just like my younger self in elementary school. And I even recall at one point purchasing Windows ME at the Marine Corps PX and how big of a dis disappointment that was and really learning what a blue screen of death was. And so my MOS or military occupational specialty in the Marine Corps was crash fire rescue, which is a sequence of events. And so when I, if I take that experience of being in crash fire rescue, when I'm working with the blue team, or if I'm interacting with the folks that are on the defending side on like Twitter, and I see things like fire drills, dumpster fires, everything's on fire, everything is an emergency. How many people in this industry have actually been in a burning building and, you know, trained to go into burning buildings, burning aircraft. Uh, in the Marine Corps, I was also EMT, so responding to emergencies. And when I got out of the Marine Corps, I went and I worked as a hazardous materials disposal specialist, which means that's getting fully kitted out in level A and walking into environments that contain chemicals that can kill you in the parts per billion. So walking past the firefighters who had kind of secured the scene and the police department, and I was there with uh, the other parts of my team, people started talking about like emergency response in the cybersecurity sense, because I kind of look back at my own uh, kind of history in emergency response, if you will, or experience, uh, but it's not the same. But having worked in those situations, I have an appreciation for what the blue team does. Uh, one of the things that I often say to folks who do red teaming and when they complain that, oh, this is, you know, this is difficult, you know, trying to uh, build a phishing engagement is difficult or trying to get a user to click on the payload or, you know, devising a payload that gets around uh, AV, it's like, if you want a really difficult job, go be a defender. They have to like catch everything, you know, anything that might be an alert that looks legit, got to run it down. Uh, they're looking if they have uh, an internal red team, you know, trying to look for them as well, but they're also trying to catch the people who are inside threats. 
actual APTs that might be trying to uh, attack the financial institution or whichever organization that they're working to defend. So I try to leverage my past jobs and experience to make a connection with them, even though I don't have defending uh, per se experience. When I got out of the Marine Corps, I tried to, to get a job as a firefighter. Uh, physical assessments, spot on. The written and personality stuff, maybe not so much. I mean, that's to this day, I really don't know why I uh, didn't really do well on them. But uh, as an example of a question I always kind of reference is, you know, say you took a pin from work. Is that stealing? Well, I can see both sides of the argument. Yes, it's stealing. It wasn't your property. But no, it's just a pen. So, I mean, there's, there's that gray area there. And, but I needed a job when I got out of the Marine Corps. Uh, I had networked with a few reservists because my last station in the Marine Corps was at a reserve unit. I was part of the INI staff, which is instructor inspector. I was a MOS subject matter expert for the reservists. And a few of them that I had worked with, uh, they worked at the University of Minnesota doing hazardous material work. And that's how I essentially was able to transition from the Marine Corps to the U of M doing hazardous materials. I knew them, I applied, I interviewed, and they were like, this is emergency response. You know, this is, uh, you know what kind of work you're going to get yourself into. But uh, there I got the experience of working with things like asbestos, mercury, radioactive materials, chemicals so reactive that they were stored in gasoline to prevent it from reacting with the water in the air. And while I worked with a lot of great people in that environment, there were folks that had been there for 10 plus years and had all that experience, but they were only making a few more dollars than I was. At that point, I kind of had rebuilt that uh, old gateway computer a number of times, and I had built another kind of from scratch, or at least picking pieces off the shelf and putting it together. Another reservist that I knew, there's, uh, you know, there's some network connections that have been made here, or networking, I should say, with other individuals. Uh, I reached out to him. We had done mountain biking and, and such, and he made a suggestion of uh, kind of, you know, working in computers. So uh, I had the GI Bill. I didn't know much about going to school. So I kind of just, I picked a school and I enrolled and chose kind of a, a network administration associate's degree. And while I can say that education certainly helped me, where I went was not worth the cost. So one of the things, if, uh, if you're interested in going back to school, you know, at that point, I was kind of like the, one of the oldest people in the room other than the professor. You know, I had, uh, I had done eight years and some change in the Marine Corps. And so at, at this uh, college, I was one of the older folks, but uh, the education helped me, but I, I didn't pick the best place. If you're trying to uh, get your left foot wet, so to speak, in education, I highly suggest seeking out a community college uh, that has 
partnerships with larger universities, kind of try to plan uh, the direction you want to go, even if you don't end up at that four, four-year university. Say you start with an associate's degree. If you go somewhere that kind of has a partnership with a larger university, you do your, two, you do your associates, then you kind of leverage that in trying to gain some experience, whether it's an internship or what have you. Uh, and then maybe a few years down the road, you take a next step and get that four-year degree leverage that partnership. So that way you're not dealing with what I dealt with is I jumped around from school to school and not a lot transferred over. So I end up having to pay for things that I essentially had already taken. And so after a few years of uh, chemicals, suits, daily wearing of respiratory protection, I'd got my first IT job. It was a contract jet. Uh, gig. This was my first step in about 10 years of IT work. I went from doing phone support, creating and shuffling tickets to desk side support, network administration, being laid off in 2009, going back to contract work so I could keep the money rolling in to pay bills, uh, bounced from project management and on-site and remote dental office support, and then back to the place that had laid me off a few years uh, earlier to be a network administrator once again. And so about that time, uh, as a network admin, I kind of wanted to explore a, a shift. This time I was more calculated in selecting an institution to further my education. Sometime around here as well, I started being with more selected of what I was going to learn. If I was gonna get a, a bachelor's degree, I wanted to choose a program with programming so that way I could learn if I'm going to go to school, if I'm going to put myself in a position where I'm spending money, I'm going to look for a program that's going to teach me something that I really want to learn. There's going to be some classes where you, you, you sit in them in order to meet a, a core general education requirement. But for the most part, I, I did my best to drive my own uh, course selection, obviously working within uh, the means of the program itself for the four-year degree. But I ended up doing programming with Java as a core element. Did it teach me to be a programmer? Not really. There were some fundamentals there and some model view controllers with client server architecture, but that was kind of like the top of the Java programming classes. It wasn't computer science, so we didn't delve too deep into anything else, but I did, at some point I did try to buy into the idea of trying to be a programmer. I went to a few interviews. No one really seemed interested in the, and bringing someone on with only school knowledge. Uh, this was the first experience I had with entry-level roles that kind of turned around and required some sort of experience, but uh, it seemed like my educational background didn't really help me. And so during school, uh, being a network admin, I did get the opportunity to go be a technical engineer with uh, the Minnesota Judicial Branch. While it's more glorious sounding than what it was, it was the top of the 
top team of escalation. So from there, we would be the ones that are calling Microsoft or other vendors to resolve issues, troubleshoot, that kind of thing. Uh, was the first team that I had outside of the Marine Corps where the team was a core group of folks that like really like understood like what it meant to be a team. Um, would drop anything that they were working on that they could to help somebody else out if, if they got stuck or what have you. We kind of knew that every, you know, all four of us needed to be on board to get things done. And it was, it was really awesome. In fact, I still interact with some of those folks uh, from time to time, but the thing that drove me away was management and leadership. I mean, the team was great. I, I love those folks. But uh, management and leadership, I, I couldn't be there anymore. And so I kind of went around and uh, started doing that networking thing, you know, uh, hitting folks up about uh, potential opportunities. And at that time, I was still thinking I was going to be in IT. I mean, I had almost been doing it for 10 years. And I figured if I have 10 years of experience, why not just keep going? But... I reached out to the same chap who had suggested computers, and he wondered if I was interested in, in, in information security. Of course, I told him I was. And I ended up working for and with some other reservists that I had known from way back when. I mean, this was at least, oh, man, it had to have been at least eight years on. I forget exactly what it is, but it's like, I joined the financial institution and I'm working with folks that I already had a rapport with and some other folks that were brand new, but it's like, it was awesome. Uh, and while I had uh, my networking associates, my programming bachelors, uh, I did end up having like an A plus from the uh, network degree. I went and I got uh, security plus kind of in between the initial conversation about a potential job in information security and getting an interview. So I, I hit the books, I got the security plus. So at least I felt like I knew I had a little bit more knowledge. And then my first job in information security space was writing checks for baselines. Uh, wasn't glorious, but uh, I leveraged my network admin role. I had worked with PowerShell quite a bit. And I even wrote scripts to check like event viewer logs and email me certain events for uh, each of the critical servers daily while mon monitoring disk space, you know, those kind of things. Because as a network admin, it was kind of in that whole, well, you have a, a physical server and maybe like a, a SAN. So uh, at that point, we were moving into like VMs and ESXi and bare metal, that was kind of new. So I wrote all these scripts so that way I couldn't monitor even VMs and physical servers, but I leveraged that, uh, that experience. And while I was writing checks, unfortunately I couldn't even use PowerShell for the tool that they had. Uh, the only scripting that was supported by their uh, documentation example was VBScript. And I had ig ignored VBScript. Uh, PowerShell was the hotness. That's what I learned. Uh, that's it, all I used. But I had to uh, turn around and leverage my programming education 
I had to not necessarily swallow any pride, but it's like I constantly was learning at that point. And it's like VB script. I can do this. I just need to, I just need to read. I need to research. I need to test. And so I was able to craft some pretty unique baseline checks. And once the organization had moved away from the previous tool, the new tool handled PowerShell. So it's all about doubling back and rewriting the custom checks that I had done in PowerShell. One of the things that I learned as I've gotten older is to leverage management where I work. And so at this time, I had been writing tons of checks for Windows machines and uh, Microsoft applications. And I'd started seeing the writing on the wall that this was going to be uh, less of a fun, let's figure it out, write these cool checks, uh, test a bunch on uh, VMs and, and such, that it was going to be more of an operational and support role. I reached out to my manager about potentially moving, and the idea of pen testing was discussed at this time. Also around this uh, point, I, I completed my CISSP, and that is one test that I will probably never take again because I remember walking out of there and I felt dumbfounded. Like, uh, I think it was the old process where it was like four to six hours instead of this. I think the new one is where it kind of analyzes you as you go and kind of the worse you do, the more it gives you an opportunity to get better. But I had a number of conversations regarding moving to pen, pen testing. And uh, while that was happening, I signed up for pen testing with Cali. And so I, I took part of the uh, pen testing with Cali course while working as a pen tester. So not only am I trying to understand the world of pen testing as a, as a brand new pen tester, but also I'm trying to go through uh, the coursework, the labs, that kind of thing. And let me be honest, as an FTE, a full-time employee, I'm not a consultant. I'm not working for other organizations. I'm an internal pen tester for an organization. And it didn't line up with what I was learning in the pen testing with Cali. I spent the majority of the summer at my desk trying to learn as much, much as possible uh, for my job and then turning around and studying for the OSPZ, OSCP exam. I failed. I had some success on the exam, but not enough to pass. To this day, it's still a sore spot. Uh, but also, I haven't really gone back. I want to. I keep making these uh, claims on Twitter that I'm, I'm you know, going to put forth the time and effort and try to get back to this exam. But I mean, it's. I mean, at the time I was a pen tester, I failed. I kept being a pen tester, and then later on, I moved to red teaming. But the thing that sticks in in the back of my mind, and I got to give credit where credit is due at least to one individual, a number of uh, really bright and helpful folks have made it more difficult to ignore the OSCP because they've put a lot of, a lot of time and effort into building out kind of a, a free informational path to gain a lot of the knowledge, such as, uh, I believe her name is Ranan Khalil. I think I have that right. Yep, that's cor correct. Actually, she was 
my last guest in her episode is coming out this Friday. <laughs> oh, that's, that's awesome. Because uh, I've, I've read her, her uh, kind of her blog a number of times and I'm like, man, this is so easy. Especially having gone through the pen testing with Callie course, it's like, there's a lot of good stuff here and a lot of it's free. If, if almost everything is free, because even with like uh, the makers of burp suite, you have uh, the web security Academy. I mean, that is all completely free, but uh, I'll get back to that. Cause I, I have a whole kind of like section about talking about uh, things to kind of help out, or at least what I might do if I was in a position that I was in like even five, six, 10 years ago kind of thing. So I failed the OSCP and it kind of mirrors my first attempt at running the Superior 100. And the Superior 100 is a 103.3 mile trail race in Northern Minnesota. And it mirrored kind of the same thing, right? Uh, months of effort putting into the miles and hours to end up getting to uh, I made it to mile 90 and there's a 0.7 because there's an aid station there. So close. I mean, we're talking less than 13 miles from the end, right? I couldn't stand up on my own anymore after I sat down at the aid station. So I'd made it that I had made it 33 hours in and I couldn't go anymore. And so that really hurt. And one of the things that I had mentioned, I, I run a YouTube channel. It's really tiny. Uh, and I kind of documented my preparedness for uh, the Superior 100 this year in 2021. I'm glad to say that I completed it. But, uh, you know, it was kind of the, the same thing where I put forth the time and effort. I, I knew this was kind of going to go down again. I kind of had been here before. So when I think about the OSCP, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've seen the exam, things might've changed, but uh, still kind of the, the core information is much like running and training where you just have to put the time and effort in. And so uh, one of the reasons that I, I talk about for wanting to run a hundred miles, and this can go for almost anybody who's trying to uh, get a certification, uh, better themselves, uh, do a career change. You have to put in the time and effort, but don't be afraid to fail. Sure. The monetary value, if you don't have the money for that, that's, that's something I can't necessarily help with, but putting yourself in a position where failure is possible that's where I think individuals make kind of the, the most gain. But uh, after a touch over two years of being a pen tester, I was asked if I was interested in applying for a position on the red team. And kind of the same thing, like I had done before to moving into pen testing, I reached out to my manager said, hey, this opportunity exists. I'd like to pursue it. Full support. And I've worked in position, like I had said before, the reason I moved away from one job is management and leadership. I understand folks aren't necessarily in a position where they would have the support. 
I would encourage people to try to find a situation where they can move within a company and kind of follow their own interests because in information security, I think people make their best headway is in following their own interests, whether it's going to be like web app security or say it's like RF. Like what if you want to like dig into flex and poxag like I did and learn a lot about it. So that way you can help other people learn about it. And so now that I've been uh, kind of on the red team for a few years now, in my time as a pen tester and red uh, teamer, I've leveraged my programming knowledge to build out some better tools to assist in that line of work internally. But I've also used kind of my IT work as a means to help understand things like end user behavior and leverage that in social engineering. And I remember where I've come from when trying to write reports and giving debriefs to different business lines. And so kind of, a, I have a few examples, if you will, of how I kind of done that. And first, uh, a lot of information security folks harp on patching and rightfully so. Yet I've done patching and trying to do appropriate patching in things like a change control environment where there needs to be a lot of testing maneuvering around the organization to accomplish a patch, route, patch rollout over time can be slow. Like even if it's something like an emergency, well, it still takes time. If you patch and you're not cautious enough or uh, weighing the risks, at what point might you end up costing uh, the company money? Does that, will that eventually affect things like brand reputation? and potentially lead to the uh, loss of jobs. Hopefully not, but when a patch for a vulnerability comes out, folks who might already have a full plate of work to do patching, now there's just something else. And let's be honest, patching is gonna be an endless effort. And so second, my second example, I've seen this, I believe on Twitter and on LinkedIn, you have an image in the first panel, you have a, a medieval knight in plate armor, and the text is showing like you have AV, you have EDR, you have DLP, you have all these technologies in place. And then on the second panel, there's the same knight, but then he has an arrow in the eye slot. And then the text says, oh, a user clicked on an email. I have some issues with, with this. I understand what they're going from, but at some point you are paying your users to check their email. Organizations do that. Granted, the onus for what they click on might be on them, but metrics show, much like in the Verizon uh, uh, DBIR, uh, that's the Data Breach Investigations Report, that phishing is a major electronic social engineering tactic. What about all the times that a user clicks on the phishing email, yet all those tools alert on nothing? What if the tools the defenders expect to alert them of something fishy aren't actually correctly configured? Like the tool might alert, but if it doesn't know where to send the alert, or if nobody's monitoring the dashboard of where those alerts eventually go, then how can you point to the user? They're being paid to check their email at least in, in some respects. 
or it goes to a bucket that's already saturated and it's sitting behind a hundred other alerts. And while that alert is sitting there as a red teamer, I'm already trying to figure out what I have access to on their machine. I'm looking at potentially moving or I'm looking for uh, information on my operational objectives in order to complete them as a red teamer. As an APT, I'm not sure what they're going for, but if they have time to do it, they're gonna to try to do it. I've also co-presented some of my baseline work at uh, B-Sides MSP. I volunteered at the, uh, the first red team village at DEF CON. I haven't volunteered since, I believe, because since they've been remote. I know most of those folks are in, in Texas, in the great state of Texas, right? And so that's one thing I've been trying to get back to if they have it in person is uh, volunteering again. I've also presented twice at my local DEF CON group, DC612. I talked about flex and poxag and capturing with uh, RTL SDR devices. And I've also talked about uh, red team phishing operations. And so as I continue to uh, kind of go about my career, I leverage my experience when crafting a phishing email or picking up the phone to socially engineer someone, I put myself in that person's mindset first. Not a specific person, but an aspect in the general sense. I also try to work my way back from what I want to gain and how can I craft a situation and the information that they might want to lead me there. It's like I'm trying to reverse engineer a conversation that hasn't taken place, but if I do it well enough and if I listen, more than I talk, I'm usually pretty successful. So one, one thing that uh, I have done in this past 2021 is not necessarily looking for a different job, but I've started applying for different jobs. For a time there, there was a recommendation to apply anyway. When looking for a role, apply. It uh, doesn't matter if you meet the criteria, apply. That's what, that's what I've heard. I've heard a lot of mentors uh, say that on different avenues of social media. Just go ahead and apply. Well, more and more I see organizations put years of experience in their application process. And maybe this is not necessarily for an entry-level person because I'm not lo necessarily looking for entry-level jobs. But I see a lot of people bring up on social media where they're showing the requirements for an entry-level job that demands experience. And I don't think that necessarily should line up. I think you should be able to hire an entry-level individual that can be taught and teach them internally. If you bring them up internally, they're gonna get a better feeling about the organization. But going back to those years of experience, if I end up answering honestly, a few times I got an instant rejection email after that. So while I did this, while I kind of noticed this and I've, I've kind of shared this on, on Twitter, the reason why I kind of went down this road is to get a better understanding of like, what do job 
seekers face in the landscape. You know, my daughter, my daughter's going to end up graduating college in, in a few years. And it's like, what does that kind of look like? I haven't had to go through an application process from the outside looking in. So I kind of was looking at this and I was surprised. And so I had turned around and I kind of shared that. And so what I would suggest for listeners is kind of use job postings as a guidepost of where you want to go. And then compare and contrast the requirements such as skills, education, experience, certifications. Those might help direct you towards which ones might be more viable based off of the position that you want to get to. And even information security, like, I don't know, with the first job that you get, are you going to stay there forever? I would imagine no. I mean, you could. But I would imagine you kind of get in somewhere, like I got into baselines. Did I expect me to be there forever? No. That's why when I had gotten to a certain point, I was like, I'm interested in, in, in moving. And I was at an organization that was like, okay, let's see what you got. And so I do have a, a few kind of uh, suggestions of where you might uh, try to go. Try Hack Me is a wonderful website. It can uh, teach you a lot of different uh, aspects of information security and hacking. Uh, there's the Web Security Academy by the makers of Burp Suite. Burp Suite. Uh, it's Portswigger, I believe. Uh, that kind of goes about uh, different labs. I don't know how many labs there are. There are a number of them. So if you take kind of a, a stance of, like me, I'm, uh, or at least I try to be an ultra endurance athlete, right? I've, I've completed 100 miles. Yes, I have the buckle. I'm going to try for four next year, but uh, four 100 milers. But how do I get there? Well, if I take like an example of the Web Security Academy, if I can put in the time and effort of just maybe one lab a day, and I can do that seven days a week, I don't run seven days a week, but I run five days a week. Okay. If I look at my life balance situation and I can only put in the time and effort to do a lab five days a week, that's going to be better than trying to hit up one day a month for so many hours. Another thing is like the Pico CTF. You don't know, go in there bite-sized. Take it, learn it. If you get stuck, don't worry about it. There's there's people that post, you know, walkthroughs and that kind of thing. Same thing with try hack me. Uh, not necessarily hack the box because I, I believe a lot of their walkthroughs are on retired machines that are publicly available. But Vulnhub has uh, CTFs if you're looking to. Uh, get more into that style. So putting forth the time and effort in, in small chunks, I think is much more beneficial. Or say you want to do uh, web security, but you don't want to do the academy. Well, if you go back to the OWASP top 10, say you do five days of five different of those top 10s one week, and then you rotate to the next week and you keep cycling back. If you're putting in so you can't put an hour in a day. Maybe that's a lot. Maybe you only do 20 minutes. 20 minutes is going to benefit you better and help incrementally get you along than trying to do like eight hours one day a month. 
because I just don't think it'll work. So yeah, yeah that, that's 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 great advice because that's one of the mistakes. Since you're using like the running analogy that I run into, that I see people were trying to start a fitness routine, whether they're runners or you know doing CrossFit or working out, just doing general workouts. Sometimes people get uh, overzealous and they're going to go in the gym five days a week and all this, and then they don't pick something that they can maintain. So that that's great advice there on creating something that you can maintain and doing a little bit at a time because, you know, you can be really motivated and you're doing the eight hours once a month. What happens if you're having a bad day trying to do eight hours worth of uh, learning can be kind of a tough task. It certainly can be. And I understand that life gets not necessarily in the way because life, life outside of work is important. That's kind of one of the reasons why I run is I enjoy my time away from the terminal, from the computer. I can go out and I think a lot. And sometimes I think about work very occasionally, but for the most part, I'm just trying to exist in a situation where I can control. Like the race director had mentioned for the Superior 100, he talked about COVID. He had talked about uh, the wildfire situation that happened in northern Minnesota that was potentially going to impact the race. He talked about things like Af- Afghanistan. You know, f- from as a racer's perspective, we can't control like 90% of that. There's only so much we can do. But when we're out there on the race for 100 miles, we're in control of almost everything. And that's what I like about being out there and running for hours, not necessarily on end, but it's like if I'm going out for a 20-mile run, I know it's going to take hours. But I'm in control of that. I can let my mind kind of go where it wants to go. I'm looking at things I normally don't see. And it's a breath of fresh air away from the the stress and the struggles at times that, you know, even red teamers face. Because as a red teamer, my responsibility is to the defenders of the organization. They are my primary customers. As a red teamer, if I didn't have a job where I work, the defenders are still going to be there. They don't need me. I'm there to help them make, make, help make them better, but they don't need me to be there. So I want to make sure if I'm putting in my time and effort that I'm actually helping them and they're getting the benefit of my work. Yeah, that's, that's a great attitude to have. And, you know, some of the things you mentioned earlier, you know, kind of reflect on my experience, you know, coming from a sysadmin background, being careful not to break stuff when you're doing a pen test, you know, uh, you know, sometimes you have to be careful of that because I think sometimes, you know, if you didn't come from an IT or security background before you jumped into that, sometimes you don't understand, but those, those are some things I can relate to. And I don't necessarily think you have to have a background, but if you have it, yeah, I think you gain an appreciation and that doesn't necessarily put you above anybody else. Because I think folks that folks that are trying to come into information security, 
I don't really have a good example of what I might say, you know, of some, some role coming into information security. But more than likely, you're dealing with customers. I deal with customers, whether it's uh, business lines or other uh, information security people. I still have to have those soft skills. And you probably have a lot more skill that could be applied in information security. And also, you might have a unique perspective. You know, if you're talking about a financial institution, if you have somebody who's a teller, they have a lot different experience than I do. But if they're coming into information security, they could probably give a better insight on how information security affects tellers and then potentially, therefore, affects your external customers. So I think all that experience is important for people to build upon and not to dismiss it. Yeah, I agree. And then be able to work with the the different groups and understanding them. Uh, my co-author, Kim Crawley of the Pentester Blueprint, you know, kind of even showed how being a barista and in different scenarios like that can be helpful as a penetration tester. So life, life experience is always good. Absolutely. Well, we're down to the end of the show, Gabe. Thanks for being my guest. Thanks for, for sharing your story and your advice for our listeners. I think it's going to be very helpful and good to hear some of the, your part of your story that I didn't know about. We've known each other for a while, but you know, some of your early beginnings I wasn't aware of. So it was really cool to hear that. Yeah, I kind of, uh, I've had these, some of the more interesting roles, but you know, it's, I try to, t- I try to take all the knowledge and experience that I've gained in those situations, you know, emergency response, uh, working with end users. It's like, I think that's all applicable. And I try to pick and choose at different times what I can leverage as a, as a red teamer to help me be more successful and then turn around and help the defenders me be more successful. Awesome. So, so thanks again for, for joining. I appreciate you being a guest. Oh, thank you. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you on the next episode. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Factory podcast with Philip Wiley. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.